of the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. An auditor is a person appointed by a company to review and verify the accuracy of its financial records. The auditor is supposed to spot any material misstatements of those records, including those due to fraud or errors. And yet, in two of the largest financial frauds in history, the 2021 collapse of German payment firm Wirecard and the recent bankruptcy of cryptocurrency exchange FTX, there were auditors in place that had verified the company's accounts. How was this possible? To answer this question, I'm joined on this episode of the podcast by Francine McKenna. Francine has worked as an auditor, as a journalist writing about accountancy, and most recently as a university lecturer on accounting. I followed her articles for years. She's someone whose opinion I always turn to first on what is a technical subject. If you'd like to support the New Money Review podcast, you can do so using Patreon. Details of how to do so are on the right column of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com. Francine, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself, your background and your area of work? Uh, Hi, Paul. I am Francine McKenna and uh, currently a full-time lecturer at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where I teach financial accounting to the MBA students. But I've done a lot of things. Um, I am still part-time writing. I was a journalist for 15 years, most recently writing full-time for Market Watch, Wall Street Journal, Barron's, etc., and have written freelance for Forbes, American Banker, Reuters, uh, columns uh, for the FT, etc. And before that, had about 25 years experience in uh, two big four public accounting firms, KPMG and PwC, and a few banks, including JP Morgan. And the first too big to fail bank was my first job, Continental Illinois National Bank and Trust in Chicago. Great. Well, um, it's great to have you on the podcast, and I look forward to uh, asking some questions about the fascinating topic of accountancy and audit. And let, let's start with the topic uh, du jour, which is FTX. Uh, I would like to quote you a line from the the first report put out by the new CEO who was brought in after the bankruptcy filing. Um, Mr. Ray said, never in my career have I seen a com- such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information has occurred here. Now, FTX, both its global entity, FTX.com, and the US entity were quite unusual in the cryptocurrency world because they were both audited. So so what happened? I mean, how is that possible? Well, we should not be surprised that this particular organization, FTX, was so much of a chaotic, uh, uncontrolled uh, situation. One is that uh, they deliberately, uh, purposefully wanted to locate offshore. So that tells you something right off the bat. Uh, They don't want to be under uh, the uh, stewardship of regulators in the U.S. or in the U.K. or somewhere in the developed world where we actually have expectations and rules. Um, They weren't listed on an exchange, although I have um, reason to believe that maybe they were thinking about that. So the question is, why did they get audits? Uh, why did they get a uh, otherwise uh, uh, fairly reputable two public accounting firms, um, Prager Metis and Armenino, to sign audits of their U.S. and their offshore entity? It's really sort of a mystery. And um, the only evidence that I've been able to deduce is that some investors actually asked them 
to produce audited financial statements, um, maybe because uh, they have been spooked by some of the other situations like Theranos, where there were no audited financial statements, or some of the other various frauds where even though there were, um, the auditors missed big things like Wirecard, et cetera, or Luckin in China. However, those audits um, were sort of um, not um, meant to give you the big picture by design. First of all, you had two different firms. You had Armenino doing the U.S. version, and you had Prager Metis doing the offshore version. So by design, you have a situation where uh, it seems that FTX and its management didn't want any one audit firm to see the big picture. The other thing is that they were not listed. Uh, they were not uh, public. They were um, uh, in a business environment that is notoriously um, unregulated and un, uh, with no standards in terms of accounting or any other normal business process. And even though they look like the kinds of things that we would see broker-dealer, investment advisor, exchange, custodian, et cetera, they are not operating under the rules that uh, traditional financial firms that do those things do. So you have audit reports that are really wholly incomplete, uh, that do not touch on or, or produce information that we would expect for similar situations. And frankly, riddled with related party transactions, which should have raised a red flag for anyone going in and looking and being asked to sign their name to a report. Right. How, how did the auditors, uh, you know, they have to abide by some kind of professional standards. How did they come to put their names to the audit? Because, you know, we've, we've heard stories that uh, FTX approved corporate expenses through emojis in uh, chats, that their messages on the Slack system were programmed to self-destruct after a set period of time. I mean, how is it possible that this kind of firm can get an audit in the first place? So there's two possibilities, two or three possibilities. The worst case scenario is that it was just a pay to play. So someone said, we will pay you for this uh, report. Uh, we want you to do a cursory amount of work. We'll send you a bunch of documents and just compile it all together and put together something that looks like with the language, something that uh, people would be willing to accept as, okay, it's got your letterhead. And those things have been done uh, by other audit firms in the past, uh, and they've also been faked by companies. So companies will find a way to steal the letterhead and fake that kind of report, and somebody gets paid off in the, in the process for that, for that situation. The kind of medium scenario is that um, these two audit firms were not actually on premises, did not actually uh, inspect systems, uh, did not talk to people in person, basically were trying to do something from a remote basis. They're following um, not uh, the standards that in the US, for example, we follow for public companies, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board standards uh, for auditing and also for reviewing um, generally accepted accounting principles, standard accounting standard uh, financial statements. They were following theoretically um, what we call the AICPA standards, which are um, standards that have been developed by the trade association for the accounting firms. 
and they are used for non-public companies, for private companies, for hedge funds, for, you know, any kind of what I call agreed upon procedures type of engagement. The, co the client comes to you and says, we want a report, we want an auditor's opinion, and here's the scope of what we want you to review and give an opinion on, and, you know, can you do it? And they come up with a bespoke approach to doing that, and they go and look for the standards that might apply. Sometimes it it's, can be called an audit. Sometimes it's really more of a consulting engagement. Um, the uh, reports that were coming out originally uh, that were trying to verify the backing of assets uh, against the stable coins were originally consulting engagements. They were just very much, we want you to write a report. We're going to tell you how much uh, we have uh, against assets uh, for these stable coins. And we want you to match up the numbers and write a report and say the numbers match up. They've refined it a little bit. Um, but still, you're talking about not a full audit. So perhaps these two firms agreed to um, get boxes of things delivered to them to do the best they could to kind of put them together, to fit them into a format, to write as much as they could based on that information, and to not ask any more questions. The other thing is that uh, obviously management teams lie. Um, they hide. Um, systems uh, can be faked. Um, I'm still not sure if if FTX ever really produced statements for customers. If they actually had to produce statements for customers, given what we've heard about money not ever being deposited in the exchange that was sitting at the trading firm, et cetera, things like that, you got to wonder how they could produce statements for customers. And then that, that, that wades into a, a Bernie Madoff style kind of Ponzi scheme where- yeah. They took customer assets and they were never invested. So yeah. the report is only as good as the auditors will look over their nose and look beyond their desk and go out there and um, be in person. And as I say, look the client in the eyes and number one, determine whether they can trust anything that that particular client management says. If you cannot trust what the client management says, if you look them in the eyes and you see a bunch of 25-year-olds living in a communal environment, doing drugs, and basically kind of taking a very uh, laissez-faire attitude towards everything, including organized uh, paperwork and regulatory compliance, you maybe should have just turned around and walked away uh, and ran in the other direction as fast as you can. Right. So let, let's let's talk about a company within the crypto world that famously has never been able to produce an audit, which is Tether. And they promised uh, audits for many years, starting, I think, in 2015, but they've still uh, yet to produce one. Uh, they have started, I think, since two or three years ago, producing quarterly attestations of their financial position at each quarter end. Um, and they recently released their one for uh, end September. But why? Why do you think that? Uh, oh, I should add perhaps that um, they've. I think they've been through six different firms uh, since they started talking with auditors uh, about possibly doing an audit. So, if 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 these kind of things can happen at FTX, you know, what do we make of Tether? Well, I spoke uh, recently in London at another conference, and the question there was, "Tell us what you think about these reports that Tether is now producing related to uh, the stablecoin, compared to, say, for example." the one that is produced by Circle for USDC. 
because Circle is in joint um, relationship with Coinbase, which is now a listed exchange. Um, they have IPO'd, they are a public company, they are filing reports with the SEC, and they are uh, a joint venture partner with um, uh, Circle to uh, in, within this center consortium to produce the USDC coin. And so Grant Thornton produces a report for them, and now we have BDO Milan that produces a report for Tether. Which both of these and, are well-respected audit firms. Well, these are these are well-respected audit firms. They are they they do work um, in in the U.S. Grant Thornton uh, does work for public companies, so they are regularly inspected. BDO is a global firm that also does work for public companies in the U.S. and in the U.K., and so they are regularly expected. However, this is the BDO Milan uh, um, uh, firm, which in all of the public accounting firms. As you go outside of um, UK, US, et cetera, these are all separate legal entities. They are, these are separate partnerships. And really there is very little um, hold that any kind of international firm or any kind of consortium of the, of the firm has over any individual partnership other than kicking them out of the partnership um, if they don't follow uh, reasonable procedures. So I was expecting, uh, given all the notoriety around Tether, that, that the report from BDO Milan for Tether might be a little less um, complete, uh, maybe, maybe hedging more, may have a smaller scope. And instead, I actually saw that Grant Thornton was hedging more. They had a much smaller scope. And even though um, Circle is telling you what banks they have, Grant Thornton is not checking the assets to see if the, whether they're in the banks. Um, on the other side, BDO Milan is checking to see whether the assets are in the banks, but they're not telling you which banks those are. So you have sort of this um, mix and match kind of a process. There's not a consistent process. And why? Because they are dictated what, what they're going to do and what the report covers is dictated by the client itself. Um, so I've never really been uh, um, a fan of any of the reports related to assets. And now I'm not a fan of the idea that um, you should make a report to prove that you have customer um, funds segregated and also held separate from the, from the, from the proprietary assets of the firm and, and not you know, uh, leveraged for something else, et cetera. Why is that? Because these reports are always going to be um, incomplete in that they're at a certain point in time. So someone comes in and says, let's do a review as of 1231. And they check something at 1231, even if they check everything, even if they go to the banks, even if they get a confirmation. And that's as good as uh, only for that day that they check. The next day, anything can happen. And we saw that with Tether, they had an enforcement action against them uh, in New York because they were actually um, committing shenanigans and moving money around, putting it in place so that the auditor would see it, and then moving it around uh, later on when the auditors had had left. And so, so they've, they've got they've got past form for doing this kind of thing. Uh, there's no reason to suspect that they've stopped doing it. Well, there's no reason to suspect that it's not possible to do it if you're pressed. Okay, so any any firm or any of the coins can do it, and that's the limitation of that type of report. This week, there was a report, a news story in the Wall Street Journal pointing out that, that some had been through the Tether quarter letter stations and they noticed that the language had changed 
for the end June attestation, um, they'd removed language. Previously, they'd said that they were they were identifying related party transactions, or they were they were, I, I think, saying that there weren't any, and they they've taken that language out. You know, how big a red flag would that be for you as a someone who's oh, I, following I think, audits? I think it's a, I think it's always a red flag when language changes, and the reason again is because these reports are bespoke. Um, the customer, the client, dictates how much or how little they are willing to have covered. They are dictating how much they are willing to um, show the auditor. Um, They are giving permission for their banks or others to respond to the auditor's inquiries about whether assets are are, um, stored there. And if the customer doesn't want to do that, if the client like Tether or Circle doesn't want to do that, it's up to the auditor to decide whether or not they want to put their name on a report, given those limitations of scope. And some will do it, some will not. Some will do it like Grant Thornton and make lots and lots of caveats and say, this report does not cover this and this and this and this and this. And then the reader of the report, the user of the report has to say, well, is it worth the paper that it's printed on then? If there's too many caveats or if things change or if they were doing something uh, last quarter and now they're not doing it, there must be some reason. And the reason is because the client said, I don't want you to do that anymore. Why? Yeah. We can only we can only speculate. All right. Let's let's rewind time a bit to the uh, early 2000s, because in some ways, the cryptocurrency bubble and its uh, crash uh, from kind of the end of last year is a, is quite reminiscent of the dot com uh, dot com bubble of 99 2000 which then deflated and then we had the, the WorldCom and Enron frauds that were exposed shortly after that uh, and that led to some big reforms in the accountancy profession in the US in particular with the Sarbanes Oxley Act um, now I mean looking looking back from you know this perspective 20 years later uh, you know what what went right and what went wrong uh, as far as those reforms are concerned So I've written uh, op-eds for the Financial Times more than once about the Sarbanes-Oxley 10-year anniversary, and then recently when uh, some have threatened to um, uh, fold the audit regulator that was created here in the United States as a result of Sarbanes-Oxley back into the SEC, that it's ineffective, that it hasn't changed anything or done anything or it's costing too much. And my opinion has always been that Sarbanes-Oxley was, had great promise and the concepts and the requirements are all good. The problem is, is that they're not um, followed in practice and there's no enforcement when they're not. So in particular, auditors continue to be conflicted more so than they ever were before because of the regrowth of the consulting firms. If you remember, Uh, Around the time that Sarbanes-Oxley was passed in 2002, before that, when you had all of these firms, including Enron, blow up, these companies blow up, um, there was a view that perhaps the auditors had taken their eye off the ball because their consulting uh, and tax arms had grown so much and they were getting revenue from from these clients for other services and kind of putting the audit in the backseat as a loss loser. And I believe that that was true. I worked in two firms. I know it's true because I know that where the where the bread is butter. However, they actually sold. Three of the firms sold their consulting arms at that time. Deloitte maintained theirs and, and then continued to grow their consulting business. But three of the firms actually sold their consulting arms. 
And when I went to work for PwC in 2005, it was about as pure of an audit firm as you could get, as you had ever seen in recent history. There was very little consulting. There was very little other work other than audit and tax that supported the audit. But they were not happy about that because Deloitte had never sold their consulting arm and the other firms were also already teeing up for when non-compete agreements would be over five years from when they had sold their arms and they were ready to get back into consulting. And they did, they all did. And now we have consulting arms that are bigger than the audit revenue in almost every instance, globally and in many of the big countries. And what does that mean? It means that there was basically untrammeled growth, unregulated growth, and we've seen over and over and over again, regulators all over the world point out that the auditors are completely conflicted, that they're not keeping their eye on the ball, they don't have professional skepticism about the audits because they're getting money in for other services and they don't want to kill that golden goose. So that's one thing that went wrong. The other is that um, there were provisions in Sarbanes-Oxley that said, we're going to do a lot more checks of internal controls. And we come back to the statement by the new CEO of FTX that was put in by the bankruptcy court. FTX was completely out of control. It didn't even have the most fundamental things of making sure that the person that cut the checks was not the person that approved the checks was not the person that was going to even spend the money, right? That you weren't writing checks to yourself out of company money. In public companies, in large public companies, in general, they're aware that they need to have those controls. And in many cases, they have improved those situations by a lot. And the auditors are aware they have to check them because they have to give an opinion on them. However, we still see fraud. So the promise of Sarbanes-Oxley was there was going to be no more corporate fraud. If Sarbanes-Oxley was supposed to stop corporate fraud, by many people's uh, account, we're now in the golden era of fraud. So what, what's, uh, you know, what's your opinion on, on that? Well, I think that Sarbanes-Oxley was um, uh, a very good law that was not fully implemented and has never really been uh, completely enforced. And uh, I worry about other countries, for example, the UK patterning new regulation and new reforms after it. And here's why. There were two really important things that Sarbanes-Oxley um, did. And the idea was to restore trust in the uh, auditing accounting profession after the failure of Enron and the dissolution of Arthur Anderson, its auditor. The idea was that Arthur Anderson had lost sight of the ball. They were focused way too much on consulting and tax and mergers and acquisitions work and other kinds of more sexy work with Arthur and with Enron. And they had used the audit as a loss leader, just kind of doing that work um, because it's a, it's a necessary evil, it's a necessary requirement, and really was more interested in doing all the consulting work. And it wasn't the case just at Enron. I mean, that is something that had developed all over the industry and definitely Arthur Anderson. Um, Arthur Anderson was, was facing a lot of litigation, a lot of other companies that had issues and problems and there were investigations and litigation against them. So Enron was only one, uh, one, one company 
that then just had come to, to fruition, bad fruition, early. So the Sarbanes-Oxley law was supposed to say, no, auditors are really on the job. They're really doing the work, and they're really going to root out um, these kinds of problems and fraud and management shenanigans um, by, one, being a little bit more independent, not a little bit more independent, but a lot more independent. And there were very strict rules about what an auditor could additionally do for a client. Lots of restrictions on the kinds of services they could provide. And then there were rules about how auditors were supposed to look at a company's internal controls. They had to now sign an opinion on the company's internal controls. They had to do lots and lots of work to make sure that the company had internal controls so that its financial reporting and disclosures were appropriate. <laughs> and in particular, the independence rules, the things that restricted the firms from doing uh, many, many different kinds of services like being an internal audit co-sourcer or doing valuation work or acting as the company's uh, broker-dealer in an M&A transaction or um, implementing, uh, designing and, and implementing new financial reporting systems and then they would go back and evaluate. All of those things were on the books, but frankly, had never really been enforced strenuously, and we're still seeing significant violations of those rules even today. What would you say, Francie, then, to the argument that we're actually, you know, the scale and scope of frauds has been getting worse? That's that's been the argument of Jim Chanos, the you know the well-known short seller, and we've seen in the last few years the exposure of Theranos, the Wirecard scandal, and more recently, and you know, a whole load of scandals in cryptocurrency. Do you agree with that argument that, that things have got are actually getting worse? I do agree with that. And the kinds of things that companies are doing and that auditors are missing are really the fundamentals, the basics. And Jim Chanos has said it, I've said it, but so has the SEC Director of Enforcement, uh, currently Gerber Graywall. When they uh, uh, finally do call out companies for not doing things right or not telling investors exactly how they're making money and or and or avoiding expenses, et cetera. Um, these are fundamental accounting things also. These are fundamental things that the auditor should see and the auditors are missing. I'll give you an example. Um, revenue recognition is the number one thing that management uses to commit fraud. They move revenue into an earlier quarter. They delay re rec recording revenue so that they can goose earnings in a later quarter for the compensation. They record revenue for things that they shouldn't, that they don't really aren't really revenue because they haven't earned it. But the number two thing that seems to be popping up still is cash. The auditors are not spotting that many of these companies do not have the cash or the assets that they say they do. And that should be the easiest thing in the world for the auditors to check. You have cash on your balance sheet. You say, I have this much cash in the bank. You're telling the world that you have a strong balance sheet and you can support your operations and you can pay for things or buy companies, etc. And you turn around and the auditors have never even checked it. And that's what we found out in Wirecard. They didn't even call the banks. They didn't make sure that the money that Wirecard said it had in offshore locations really existed. And that's just the other day. 
we've had to what extent francine is this is this a problem of um i mean the polite <laughs> term for it i guess is regulatory capture regulators going to work at some of the firms that are then suspicious doing suspicious things uh, I guess a, a you know a cruder word would be, be corruption for for you know to what extent is this a problem of 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 corruption you know people going from the regulators to work at big cryptocurrency firms in the last few weeks the uh, exposure of the FTX was was paying politicians on both sides of the both sides of the political divide in the US uh, to to keep the sweet I mean it, how how big a problem is this? Well, I think that that's the next layer. The next layer is that why are auditors not doing their job? Why are they not doing the fundamentals? Um, part of it is commercialism over professionalism. So we talked about this. They've been allowed to continue to grow consulting arms, regrow consulting arms after having sold them in the dot-com era. And who allows them to do that? The regulators. The SEC, the uh, audit regulator here in the United States, the PCAOB, um, the FCA and other re similar regulators all over the world. Why do they allow them to do that? Because of what you mentioned, the revolving door and regulatory capture. And those are two different things, really. Revolving door leads to regulatory capture, but revolving door is only one way that you have regulatory capture. Revolving door is you have uh, agencies like the SEC or the PCAOB, the audit regulator here in the US, that require expertise in accounting and auditing to regulate. And so what is their natural recruiting ground for that expertise? The largest public accounting firms. And then those uh, positions are considered honorary. They're kind of grooming uh, places where uh, people can uh, go in at one level and then come out and be appointed to leadership levels in the firm. So then they roll back out into the firms and then they're sort of compromised. And they also even know everything about what that regulator was looking at at their own firm, let alone other firms. But then you also have regulatory capture and you don't have to have the revolving door to have regulatory capture. You just have to have the possibility that people will identify much too much with their clients. And of course, all professionals at a certain level, especially in developed countries, are all of a certain socioeconomic status. They've gone to university. They are living a certain life. They may be living in the same communities. They may be sending their children to the same schools, uh, on the same uh, uh, sports teams, et cetera. And so you identify. And the thing you hear most often when it comes to uh, trying to enforce the law uh, on the audit firms in particular, but also in the corporate environment is, I don't want to ruin someone's life. I don't want to take them out for one mistake. So the idea that somebody is cheating, is committing fraud, um, is looked at through a different lens, through a what if it was me lens, and I don't want to ruin their life over a mistake where maybe they were um, uh, financially strapped or maybe they had uh, too many expenses. But you've seen in the UK many of the cases where the auditors have been uh, embezzling or cheating on their expense reports, et cetera. It's to support a luxe lifestyle. It's to support a debauched lifestyle. It's not to support um, uh, poor children in Ethiopia. You're teaching the next generation on your university course. So what, uh, what kind of feedback are you getting from them when you describe this, uh, this pretty sad picture? Well, um, I'm, I'm surprised and pleased at the reception to the MB from the MBAs here at Wharton. 
uh, I was sort of warned that they're very jaded. Many of them have investment banking and private equity experience already. And they're definitely not uh, the students that I had been exposed to before, the ones that are uh, going to be um, uh, chartered accountants and CPAs and are going to go work in the accounting firms. Frankly, I had been speaking to them for 15 years, and I felt like my message was, uh, I was repeating myself. But the opportunity to actually talk to the people who are going to be the users of financial statements, who are going to be working at the issuers of financial statements, and in particular who are involved in these deals, these acquisitions, the venture capital, is great. And many of them, frankly, I think have been hungry for understanding what's really going on. They read a lot of the news, they read media, they hear things from uh, their future employers or their current employers, and they kind of hear this same old story about how profit is the goal and we should maximize profit at all costs and it doesn't matter if you cheat on your taxes. And I tell them that there's a third way, there's another way. The other way is to do things right and to earn um, the, the, the returns, to earn uh, the respect of your shareholders, but also of your employees and your stakeholders. To think about allocating capital, not just to dividends and repurchases, but to growing the business and to, and to paying people fairly and to contributing to your community. And I think that this generation, and I'm talking about late 20s, early 30s mostly, is the age group of the MBA students here. I think that they are um, both aware of the challenges and also looking for a way to imbue more meaning in their lives and in their work and not to have to divide um, who they are and what they believe in from what they have to do during the day to make a living. So right. I, I'm really um, gratified and I'm looking forward to a new term uh, in the spring. Great. And final question, as, as investors, in a way, we kind of, most of us in the past have been taught to keep an eye out for the auditor statement and to, to look out for any qualifications in the auditor's opinion. Um, and we've, as we've been discussing, there are, you know, there's, there's some limits on how much we can trust those uh, financial statements. What, what would you recommend to investors to, you know, what's the best way to protect themselves when they're looking I'm at market opportunities? I'm getting that question a lot um, in the FTX case uh, and with regard to crypto firms and all of the different um, um, things that now um, they're asking uh, the, these firms of these firms are volunteering more audited audited reports, more reports that auditors have somehow been involved in. And people are asking me, well, isn't that better? Shouldn't that make us feel reassured? Unfortunately, it's not because these firms are operating outside of the regulatory environment and they're trying to substitute bespoke or um, reports that are dictated by management that are not uh, of the same scope as traditional audited financial statements. They're trying to substitute that uh, in a way to try to avoid full regulation. What should you look for? You have to look for reputable firms. Uh, investors should be more involved in knowing who the actual person is that's doing the audit. Uh, they should be looking at whether management is cooperating or just going through the exercise um, as uh, a necessary evil. I made a joke about FTX. Their language about the audit was really all wrong. They were saying that they were audited, but what they said is, we passed our gap audit as if they had passed a kidney stone or something. 
They were talking about it in terms of a um, pass-fail grade, which it's not really, it's a process. And they, they didn't spot that we were cheating, basically. Yeah, and basically that they had gotten out of it uh, whole and that they got some um, uh, good, heat, good house, housekeeping seal of approval and that then it was over, it was done, and everybody should just kind of walk away and accept it. And that's not how it works. It's a process, it's a relationship. And with the auditors, it should not be a friendly one. It should be an adversarial one. Um, if you are not sweating and anxious as an auditor every single day on the job, you're not doing your job because that means you've gotten too cozy. Let's hope there's some cryptocurrency firm auditors listening in. Thank you very much, Francine. That's been a fantastic uh, and very interesting chat. So it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.